We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology for everyday life. And um, today, excited to have on the show, back on the show, John Walton. Everyone kind of knows who John Walton is. He wrote The Lost World of Genesis 1, um, the, the NIV commentary on Genesis, a bunch of books that like everyone references. And he writes, like, you know, there's really good book, you know, but there's another book from John Walton called Old Testament Theology for Christians from Ancient Context to Enduring Belief. But I want you to catch that Old Testament theology for Christians. And it's like, think about it. People in the Old Testament actually had a th- their own theology. <laughs> and it's like, it's like almost, it's weird for us to think that, but it's weird that it is weird for us to think that they really did have beliefs and in what ways were they same or different than ours. But um, I recently um, wrote John Walton because I, I, I wanted to ask him some, some questions, not so much to glean from his ancient near east insights but that's why i did wanted to be him because i know he knew his stuff but basically on how does this man move from exegesis to theology because i so like in my life i've been having a little bit of a crisis in regards to like solidifying you know my theology and and then the hermeneutical or interpretive grid that I like need to apply to even get there. And then I'm like, well, what, what's the right grid? What's the right, I'm just, I'm starting to like, my head's starting to spin. And so I, I thought of Dr. Walton because I know he, he does both. He's not a one trick pony. So Dr. Walton, I've gone almost full circle. Okay. So when I was just a baby Christian, I thought, okay, Bible reading, I'm just to here to pick out one good one-liners. I can do all things Christ strengthens me like mantras. And then I kind of went, okay, maybe it's like a character study, you know, oh, you know, don't, you know, be like Joseph and flee, you know, flee lust, even if it sucks and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I went on to like uh, my, my attempts at exegesis and cultural context in which you'll often say the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And that was like something, but then I as lofty as I am, I thought I moved beyond that, Dr. Walton. I'm like, no, now, now I know. Let me move ahead. Leaving Dr. Walton in the dust. Here I am, 41. I have a bachelor's degree. Here I go. <laughs> um, and so I got really excited on um, biblical theology. Like, I mean, it, it was like what I really wanted, right? What I really needed and when we say biblical theology, like Gerhardus Voss or, you know, this, the, um, the history of redemption, which you talk about in length in your book. And um, I know uh, probably most of my readers, that's their jam, the history of redemption, like um, especially sort of neo-Calvinist and the Kuyperian tradition I'm part of. Um, but then I started, I was like, well, there's still sort of these gray areas. Like if I can't connect the dots, for example, of how 
you know, because I believe like the road to Emmaus, like, okay, all these things point to me, like, in what way do they point? And if I can't connect the dot, is my goal just to, to dig down and, and keep trying until one day I can? Or is there something just in and of itself that doesn't point to Jesus that has value or whatever? And I know I'm just setting you up for 1000 comments. You're like, which one am I going to say? Um, I'm almost done there. This buildup's important because it, it sets the reason for the call it conversation. Um, so biblical theology. And then I coupled with that, sort of with that, um, that emphasis that did give me joy. I started to think, okay, well, that's the history of redemption. But what does that really mean? That's like about Jesus and, and, and you even say, okay, it's not just about saving, say, getting saved from, you know, hell, but it's, it's redeeming all of cosmos, which you're like, okay, that's good. You know, you give a nod to that because it's not so narrow. But I'm like, but what am I just supposed to do? Like, what, what is piety? What's spirituality? And this got my head spinning, Dr. Walton. So there's emphasis on Trinitarian theology right now and uh, or retrieval of it or participation and life in the spirit and the cultural mandate and all these things, which I agree and are biblical and i think even most of those you'd say yes those are true notions and concepts but i'm like i i'm now stepping back and i've almost um for all the reading i haven't arrived if you will you know like of books there are no end but i still i feel like i've gone full circle and now i'm like you know what i think i just want to be a guy who's a exegete again i just want to go back and even though I want to see what, what Christianity has to do with, you know, being a dad or hiking on the beach, I feel like it's safer for me to just see, okay, well, what did the original text mean to the original people? And then not even, to my shame, not even try to form a theology, right? And so I hope, I'm sorry for that long intro, but I hope you're able to kind of capture the, the area where I'm at. So before I like launching a specific questions are you following sort of this this crisis i'm having and have you seen it before or and just any general thoughts sure it's the story of the church <laughs> it's it reflects all of the the tensions the directions the cognitive dissonance uh, all of those issues and, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm going to say loud and clear throughout this talk, whether you see yourself as an exegete, or as a theologian, or as an apologist, or as a skeptic, or as a pietist, or whatever it is you see yourself as, however many of those hats you're comfortable wearing, it all, all, all has to start with sound methodology. And so that's where the conversation has to take place. There's no point talking about which points in space you are sitting at. You have to talk about how do we get there and how do we do it well? How do we do it faithfully? And so it all goes back to methodology. And if you don't have a sound, consistent, controlled methodology, you're going to find increasing tension and cognitive dissonance as you engage in all of those different areas. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, and that's what I'm noticing. I'm like, it, it's all built on the scripture. Like, this is the foundation. Um, so before I even 
tap on you and your own like hermeneutics and grids or filters or approaches. Um, I almost want to start with the end because these things will be woven in. What would you say is sort of the center of the beginning to end? Would you use the term the history of salvation? Would you like what what terms are helpful for 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 you or would you rather not use the term like what um yeah what is the center what what would you say is the center of the message of the bible what is the forest okay first of all i typically would not use the word center because in biblical theology that's been used to identify something that every book is intentionally talking about mm. and i don't think there's anything that every book is intentionally talking about so for that technical reason, I avoid the use of center. Mm. If I start asking the question in terms of a meta-narrative, certainly history of redemption or salvation history is one of the meta-narratives. It's a particularly Christian meta-narrative, uh, and it's one that has long been popular, especially in Reformed circles. Uh, the question I ask about a meta-narrative is, um, would the authors of Scripture have recognized it as a meta-narrative that they were addressing? If they would, then that's something to consider. If they wouldn't, well, now I have some concerns because if there's some grand meta narrative and they don't know about it and they're not talking about it, then how do we justify drawing it out of what they say? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want a meta narrative that I believe the authors themselves are aware of. They might, it might, might not be that every book is addressing it intentionally, but it's something that is on the on the radar. It's in their awareness, and it's it's pretty important in their awareness. And when I think about history of redemption, that immediately encounters a problem. None of the Old Testament authors knew that they were think, doing anything about a history of redemption. Mm -hmm. They might have been talking about how God's delivered His people Israel, but that's not what we mean by history of redemption mm -hmm. in a the theological meta narrative. Mm -hmm. We're talking about saving from sins. And the Israelites were not aware that they needed to be saved from sins, were not aware that any instrument would possibly do that, and that's simply not on their radar. <laughs> so I want a meta-narrative, since I'm an Old Testament guy, I want an old meta-narrative that they're going to recognize. Mm. As I ask that question, there are basically two issues that I see as involved from front to back and also not just bleeding into the New Testament, but driving the New Testament as well. And those two words are relationship and presence. God created us to be in relationship with us and to dwell among us. We see that from the earliest chapters of Genesis all the way through both Old Testament and New Testament. And I preach that sermon. I call it Emmanuel Theology. You can find it all over the internet. I don't need to preach it again here. So good. We'll link it. I just listened to it and I, I sent it to 17 people. Yeah. Uh, John Walton is a boss. <laughs> so, so relationship and presence and both of those have um, intrinsic connections to covenant. Mm. And of course, that's something that's uh, easily more recognizable uh, as you read through the Old Testament. So those are the things that I would see as prominent within the meta narrative that Old Testament authors and Israelites would have recognized. Yeah. And they don't just get dropped when you get to New Testament, they get developed uh, sometimes by quantum leaps like the Incarnation and Pentecost. And those things become uh, 
issues that now have developed in new ways. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my meta narrative. I love this 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 line from your book. You say, if the meta narrative thread fails to do justice to the Old Testament, such efforts are counterproductive to the text's authority. We must be careful that our attempts to understand unity do not ultimately undermine authority. Man, like it's crazy that that's scary to me. I'm like, I don't want I want to stay within the tradition. I, like tradition, you know, I'm like, I got to mm-hmm. stay in the tradition, but I'm like, so, cause here's the thing lately I've been landing outside of the, con- the reform confessions and I'm getting some haters hating me, but I just am not seeing the text say some of these things. And it's, it's a weird place to be. And I keep sending two of my friends who are with me on this journey, some quotes from your book where like John Walton is so punk rock. He, he's, you don't live out there on your own. It's all rooted in history and you reference other people, you know, you have the church with you, but you're not trying to have this label of reformed or, or a pietist, or I, I love that about you. I can't even nail you down on a, on a label. I haven't even seen you try to claim one. <laughs> well, the, you know, the labels we use reflect our accountability. Mm. You know, yeah. I, I love Calvin and Luther and the things that they did but I'm not accountable to them. Uh, I, I love things that Aquinas or Augustine or Chrysostom or Irenaeus did, but I'm not accountable to them. I wanna benefit from them. I wanna respect them. I want to learn from them, but I'm not accountable to them. Wow. I am accountable to the authors of scripture, <laughs> Old and New Testament. That is my accountability. And if I label myself something else, then I am shifting my accountability. Hmm. My allegiance, so to speak, my allegiance is to the authors of scripture because hmm. they have been vested with the authority of God. Hmm. And therefore, if I'm going to get the divine message that God intends me to get, I've got to go through the mechanisms that he used to yeah. do it. Now, you could say he used people like Augustine or Calvin as well, and he did, but not in the same way. We don't yeah. add their writings to scripture. Hmm. So, yes, he used them. We want to learn from them. Uh, but still, they're they're trying to do their best. Yeah. But who am I accountable to? Yeah, and yeah. lots of hermeneutics comes down to a question of accountability. Yes, that's good. I like that. That notion of accountability. You are kind of right, because I because that when I dissent from, you know, the confessions, I'm like, uh oh. I'm dis. Am I dissenting from truth? No, I know I'm not. But you might have seen that that picture where there's a like a, a big, a large portion of water heading down somewhere, and it's about to flood a town or something. But it says like the creeds are on the left side and the confessions to sort of steer the water. Mm-hmm. And there is something to be said why we we all sort of appeal to tradition. Well, you know, like. The, uh, the history, the last 2000 years, they we're not saying they've always been right, but there is sort of a value in what has, what has been believed and before. So how do you like, you know, the people will say, oh, Jason, you know, that's me. I'm Jason or, or like John, well, how, <laughs> how are you not just a biblicist? Do you, you think that you guys can just, um, come it's just you and the bible and the spirit and that's it like you know what i mean how what what are 
there sort of need almost needs to be a checks and balances, but what is it other than the word itself? But you, you know what I mean? I, sure. I so like it's a good point. So I want to be a faithful interpreter. The strongest interpretation is presumably the one that helps me feel like I'm being faithful. The strongest interpretation is the one with the strongest evidence, not with the longest tradition, not with the most spiritual people, not the one that I like better, not the one that I just have intuitive feelings about, not the one that I say, oh, the Holy Spirit told me this, so it's right. The strongest interpretation has the strongest evidence. Therefore, my job as an interpreter is to dig up all the evidence I can get my hands on. Now, I'm not the only one that can dig up evidence. Heavens no, there are loads of people, whether it's commentators or theologians or church historians, loads of people that, from whom I find evidence that I wouldn't have found on my own. Mm-hmm. But it's evidence, not opinions. Mm-hmm. And so I learn from the evidence that we develop as a community, both in space and in time. Uh, we, we interpret in community. That's what our traditions mean to us because we are taking our place in this community of interpreters. But the whole idea of interpreting a community is that any of us could have insights and ask questions and identify evidence that others of us wouldn't see. Yeah. And that means we are all dependent on one another. That doesn't mean everybody's right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that I just kind of pick the one that, that has been around the longest. Uh, I want to know, when, when I read what Calvin or Augustine or Luther have to say, my question is, what is their evidence? So good. That's my question of, of any commentator, whether they're German critical commentators or evangelical fundamentalist commentators. Mm-hmm. What is your evidence? So because good. evidence makes the strongest interpretation. Well, uh, different a- people come to different interpretations because they may weight the evidence differently. Mm-hmm. Granted, that happens. I might think one piece of evidence is particularly strong and somebody else might say, that's nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, furthermore, how we use evidence and how we build a case in evidence is often mm, a little bit dependent on our presuppositions. Yeah, yes. Um, and they could be presuppositions about the nature of the text, presuppositions about the relationship of the testaments, presuppositions about all kinds of things. Okay. So yeah. that means that even people dealing with the same evidence might come to different conclusions because they weight the evidence differently or they have presuppositions that mm. lead them to understand yeah. the evidence differently. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that we have to, to work through to, to yeah. discuss. Why, why is that? Um, uh, we, we all have presuppositions we hold dear. Sometimes they, we hold them dear because we've evaluated them over and over and over again, and we find them reliable. Hmm. Other times, we don't even know we have it, yeah. but we still hold it dear. Yeah. We're not even aware of it, right. and yet it factors into so many things that we do. Hmm. And those we have to take a good hard look at. Yeah. So I want to, I want, I love that we... We're never going to take you out. We're never going to catch John Walton off guard. He's got like the perfect one-liner for everything. The strongest interpretation is the one with the strongest evidence. It's like common sense 101, but it's almost, it's almost liberating to hear that. I'm like, okay, so it's okay. Oh my gosh. I know my listeners, because my listeners are mainly reformed. They're probably just so fired up, but I mean, 
let's be real, right? So my, here's a question for you. What, talking about presuppositions and hermeneutical frameworks, that's where I'm almost throwing my hands up. I'm like, man, is everything about the Trinity? Is everything? And then you, you just by the way, the reader, listener needs to read and you just, you're, 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 what you talk about the lack of Trinity in the Old Testament or whatever, just like, just common sense 101 is just what we're reading. But what hermeneutic or presupposition do you think I would be safe? We just, my mom, who's just cracking open the Bible, not scholars, just people just trying to learn, just trying to read the word of God. What should we bring in? What should be our hermeneutic? Is it law gospel? Is it creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Like what is the hermeneutic or the presupposition or the something that I should carry in my mind as I crack open the book? Even though I've expressed a meta-narrative, it's not my meta-narrative that drives my interpretation. It's my interpretation that leads to my meta-narrative. Right. And if my interpretation doesn't lead to it, I shouldn't have it. And mm. if my interpretation ends up deconstructing it, I should get rid of it. My interpretation leads to my meta-narrative. What drives my interpretation is the best sense that I can have, both through research and just consideration of what the author's intentions were. If I start to say, oh, Genesis 1, 26, these plurals are about the Trinity. Hold it. Is that what the author would have intended? Mm. The, the human Israelite author, because God's working through them. I can't say, well, God would have intended it, even though the author wouldn't have. I've got no access to that. Mm. I only have access to what the author has said. Would the author have intended that? If my answer is no way, then I say, well, then that's not the interpretation because that blows my accountability. I can't be accountable if I'm willing to set aside whatever he thought and put in it what my best theological ideas might be. Mm. And so I have to ask, so if I say, no, it's not, then I have to go another direction. Mm. Sometimes I might say, well, could it have been? Maybe I need to look into that more. Mm. Okay, so do we have any evidence that the Israelites had any revelation or any thoughts about Trinitarian theology? If mm. we don't, then we're going to say, okay, I'm going to set that aside. That's not because Trinitarian theology is a problem. I've got no problem with Trinitarian theology, but I'm not doing theology yet. I'm doing exegesis first. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so author's intention for me is not the only step. Mm. It's just the first step. Mm. And if you misstep on the first step, you're going a wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. What about this, this notion of divine authorial intent? And you just said, why well, I can't know what that is, but what if you see after you have the new Testament and you could say, and it's not a large leap, you know, on maybe some of these things you're like, Oh, maybe the original writer didn't understand what they're writing, but it is as clear as day. Now looking back, is there a place for divine authorial intent that the original writer maybe not have known that they were doing? Okay. So we have in some cases when a new Testament author is dealing with an old Testament text, we now have two writers' intentions. We don't have to assume that they're the same. Genesis might be doing something with a text that's perfectly legitimate, has authority, author's intentions, everything good. 
we might come along and a New Testament author might do something different with that text. That's okay. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's got the inspiration going. Mm. He's vested with the authority of God. Mm. He's not trying to tell you what to think about the Old Testament author's intention. The New Testament authors are never doing that. Mm. The New Testament author is saying, here's our perspective from our point in history, from our point in theology, from the points we're trying to make, and here's a way to think about it. Maybe it's a new, fresh way. Mm. That doesn't change what the Old Testament did with it. It supplements it. It says, and here's another truth. Let me give you an example. Um, When you're working within the uh, sin salvation or sin judgment salvation kind of Mm. meta narrative Mm. Um, and using the new testament as your guide for reading old testament you're going to get to the flood story and you say well obviously this is a case of god's judgment you had the sin that led to the need for the flood and god judges it and he delivers noah and you know brings redemption okay not he's not being saved from his sins but Mm. okay and that that fits that Um, and you could say Every, every reference to the flood in the New Testament talks about it in the context of judgment. Okay? I don't disagree with that assessment of what the New Testament does with the flood. Mm. However, when I look in Genesis, I don't see any hint that God is judging the world mm. or that this is punishment. Mm. God is reestablishing order. Okay? That doesn't mean that he's punishing sin, at least that isn't brought out Mm. in the Old Testament text. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to say, oh, the New Testament folks got it wrong. Of course they didn't. Yeah. Their human author's intention highlighted a judgment perspective, and that's perfectly legitimate for them Mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. And I accept that. It works in the things they're saying. Mm. Cool. We can think of the flood as judgment. Mm. That doesn't mean the Old Testament narrator is thinking of the flood as judgment. And so I have to ask the question, what is the Old Testament narrator doing with it? Because that has authority. I can't just throw it away. I love that. And so I'm going to read the Old Testament through the eyes of the Old Testament narrator and try to discern what he's doing. I'm not going to let the New Testament tell me that because it's not trying to tell me that. Wow. But I can hold the New Testament right alongside it and say, and here's another perspective that we can benefit from as we look at it from another angle. That is so good. Well, that's such a motivation to to read the Old Testament. So it's not like you're throwing out, you know, there there do, in fact, exist, say, a type or a shadow. And, you know, and some people say that the New Testament authors must explicitly touch on it. Others not. But that's neither here nor there. But it's as there is sort of the two. You're right. Like the original here was supposed to learn something. So I do have a question in connection with your the analogy that you or just the example you brought up so you might like a lot of folks will be interested to see um the first adam adam proper right he he is he's in in a garden he's cultivating you know fruit if you will he he partakes he sins he's ashamed and he's naked then he's covered okay And you probably know where I'm going with this. And then a lot of people will highlight the fact that Noah gets off the boat. He plants the garden, you know, hearkening back to the original garden. He takes of the fruit, if you will. He gets drunk, you know, he gets sloshed. (laughs) And then 
he he becomes naked right and then this bizarre scene like i don't know what's happening with his sons but they cover him up okay so at least there's some sort of parallel what does the and then and then you could also even just go to like the um garden gethsemane where you have jesus also in a garden right or even when he's resurrected he's in a garden are you the gardener so there's these things that maybe aren't explicitly mentioned in the old testament or in the new testament but seem like they seem pretty like clear to me and actually find them very sort of edifying and compelling or i'll even say one more the thorns in you know that are the curse or whatever the thorns that are there (laughs) the thorns that are become present Okay, but then you have Jesus wearing the crown of thorns and the sweat on your brow. Then we have Jesus sweating blood and then paradise lost and then on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What is to be said of these types or shadows or or what or like the legitimacy? Okay, so the first one you mentioned with the comparison between creation and the flood. Um, that's not typology. That's literary patterning. And there's really very little doubt that the author of Genesis is doing that. In okay, fact, literary pattern. That's so good. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's how you to that's how you track with the author. If we're accountable wow. to the author, we want to track with the author. If the author is using literary structures, rhetorical devices to do something, we want to follow. That's evidence. Mm-hmm. And so that helps us to understand the patterning that takes place between creation and the flood. And it helps us also to understand how that fits into the author's grand scheme. That's within the book itself. Now, all the other things you talked about are not that sort of thing. Okay. Those are things that, again, we might call typology or still it might be patterning of some sort, but it's a different sort because it's not the author doing the literary patterning within his own work. Right. Okay. When you have typology, whether it's thorns, you know, sweating blood, sweating, you know, uh, or uh, those kinds of things, garden, garden, right? That's a process of connecting dots. Pretty mm-hmm. simple, connecting dots. Yeah, you know, so you see the type and the anti-type, and and they're connecting dots. Here's the thing about connecting dots: you have to have both of them before you can connect them. Okay, well, if you have one dot, you've got nothing, you know. It's a vector. It doesn't connect anything. Okay. So that only works when you have two dots. And the connecting is going to be done by the person that's in vicinity of the second dot. Yes. Right? Yeah. So that is a hindsight process. Mm. And it's an intertextuality process. Now, I think that a good case can be made that Jesus is being presented in the Gospels as a second Adam. Yeah. That Jesus is being presented in the Gospels as a second temple. Mm. That Jesus is being, or a new temple, not the second temple period. Jesus is being presented in the Gospels as, um, as a new Israel, mm. going through all the steps that Israel goes through. Mm-hmm. I think you can make all of those cases. Mm. And those are intentionally, in my mind, in my understanding, intentionally developed in the New Testament. Mm. Mm-hmm. We can appreciate those as part and parcel of the gospel author's intentions yeah and they have authority as the gospel author's intentions Mm. that doesn't mean that i'm going to read genesis that way okay okay Okay? because they only have one dot yeah no this it's this is so helpful so it's not that you're not saying 
types and shadows and and you know these sorts of things don't exist it's like you're basically saying well well what did it mean to those first guys first because like, the, the they really did read it so based upon that i okay so this is me like again i i'm i'm a, i just read books I, I didn't go to school right but once i saw like the types and shadows and those sorts of things they have brought me great encouragement like i'm like okay yes and they often point towards Christ, you know, the, the work of Christ and, you know, the parallel or patterns or whatever. Um, and so for like, if I don't, and this is where you could just rebuke me and correct me, but if I don't see those things in the Old Testament, then I'm kind of like, well, what do I do with this? So, for example, there's this like just the bizarre story of Samson. It's just so bizarre, right? Or or Jacob and Esau and the meat stew and the birthright. <laughs> like, um, what if I could find a, a a dot connecting, a pattern, a type, then I'll say, okay, cool. But um, what if you can't? Like, what you know, what if we can't? What what's something that we could learn from? Like, maybe you could think of just a story that we might think is bizarre and there it might not point towards Jesus necessarily. But what is it we going to learn? Are we going to learn about the character of God or the nature of man or our ultimate telos or? Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's start with the first thing you mentioned, then we'll move to, to that. Um, so you talked about how you're encouraged by seeing the connecting dots. Okay. We have to be careful here mm. um, because people can be encouraged by their own imagination and that doesn't get you very far. Mm. Um, I would feel encouraged when I understand the way that the biblical authors are connecting dots because they have authority and mm -hmm. I track with authority. Mm -hmm. That's my accountability. Mm -hmm. If the New Testament authors are connecting dots, then I can count on that. I can adopt that as God's message. New Israel in Jesus, new Adam, new temple. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. adopt that with confidence in the authority of those texts. Now, if they don't connect a dot, and you alluded to this earlier, yeah. if the New Testament authors don't connect the dot, now, now I'm more standoffish, okay? Because how do I know I how do I know there's even a second dot there? Right. How do I know this isn't my imagination? Yeah. Our imaginations, however much we might sometimes be impressed with them or encouraged by them, do not have authority. And I feel like it's uh, it's fundamental for me to distinguish what has authority and what doesn't. Mm. And therefore, you know, I, I might get carried off with uh, thinking about a certain dot connection that I can imagine, yeah. but I can't for a moment put that in the category of authority. Mm. And I mm. certainly can't let, let it take precedent over what the authority of the text is doing. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I can't, can't do that. I have to track with the author. I'm accountable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... In that sense, I often feel like I need to curb my imagination. Mm -hmm. And maybe in the church, sometimes we need to curb our imagination, mm -hmm. lest it overrun and override the actual authority of the text. And I, I know that, you know, the um, there's various views on this, you know, people, you know, even in within the reform tradition, if you will, like. Well, we could only interpret if Jesus or the apostles specifically mentioned with authority, which, yeah, at least can't go wrong there, right? If you're saying the authority, um, whereas, you know, 
like GK Beal, you know, you know where I'm going with this. They might say, well, this is, this is the hermeneutic. And so I'm not even trying to, to have the, 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 this interview about that, but where they might say, well, the hermeneutic is an, an Emmaus road hermeneutic, if you will. And so we're to sort of go back and, but regardless of uh, like, so I might currently believe in that hermeneutic, but what if, so I could, I believe in that. And there's some stories in the old Testament where I, I can't connect any dots and I'm like, okay. So regardless of if I connect a, a dot or not, and if that's right or wrong approach, there still exists a story out there that makes no sense to me. Okay. Like, like Samson so, or something. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that. Just on the way there. Um, Bill and I disagree on this um, because Jesus may suggest ways that we can think about Old Testament, but he does not give us a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic has to have controls, and we have no idea what the controls could be or how they would work. So he didn't give us a hermeneutic, though he alerted us to the fact that we should be able to see how Old Testament sometimes leads to him. That doesn't mean every time leads to him. There's nothing in Jacob's pottage, his porridge, that's Jesus. Okay? So what do we do with the Old Testament? That's the big question on everyone's minds. And it's the question I deal with all the time. Right. And again, I would say we have to understand what Scripture is doing and how it does it. Mm. And the church has been blatantly neglectful of that mm -hmm. and it's largely not because they don't like the old testament it's because they really haven't figured out what to do with it mm. now again i don't want to sound arrogant like i've got the answer that everyone's been waiting for for years i i only try to develop a hermeneutic that's going to get us there yeah no absolutely okay so the way i see the old testament um and i found that this works pretty consistently is that the old testament is not trying to give us a systematic theology it's not trying to give us a moral system it's not trying to give us ethical role models it's not trying to give us heroes <laughs> and villains wow. it's not trying to give us mystical little uh, mantras or uh, insights for the day it's not trying to give us proof texts for right all these things that it's not doing, what is it doing? Mm. What it's doing is showing us God's plans and purposes. Mm. It's telling God's story. All of those narratives about Samson or about Jacob or about Esau, they're not Jacob and Esau's and Samson's stories. These are God's story. And mm. God is working out his plans and purposes through people, through the covenant, through events, through people who cooperate, and through people who don't, yeah. Yeah. okay? Yeah. And, and God is telling us his story. Mm -hmm. We know people as we know their story. We are in relationship with people as we learn their story. We gauge our relationship by the story that we know. God has revealed not so much himself, although parts of himself, but certainly, as you know, not 
We don't get very deep before we run into brick walls in that. But yeah. he's revealed how he's been working out his plans and purposes through history. Mm. And he tells us his story, his story in creation, his story in covenant, his story in wanting relationship with people and wanting to dwell among them, his story of how he provides mercy and grace and forgiveness, his story about how he eventually sends his own son to provide redemption, his story about how his plans and purposes are for mm. a new heaven and a new earth where we will all dwell with him. He will dwell with us. Mm. He's mm. preparing a place for us. He wants to be with us. He's telling us his story and showing us how that's worked out bit by bit by bit. And our job is to find our place in God's story and to be participants in God's plans and purposes. Mm, 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 and mm. each of the narratives, and I think this is one of the main areas where we've made a mistake. Mm. We take a look at each of those narratives and we say, okay, that narrative, Samson, you know, killing a lion. Okay, what does that mean to me? <laughs> Who are the lions in my life? No, I don't want to rip them apart. No, okay. Um, we, we say this story, somehow, somehow, if the Bible is going to be God's word and relevant to me, this has to be about me. Mm. We try to drag it into what I call the me box. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. this is all about me. It's trying to teach me some moral sense or some ethical behavior or some behavioral role model or, or mm. something about Jesus or, or something. Because otherwise, what does the story mean? Mm. What does the story mean? The story is showing us yet one more instance of where God worked through his people to move forward in his plans and purposes. And so instead of dragging each of those narratives one by one, the narrative bubbles into my me box and saying, what does this mean to me? Mm. Instead, I let them let them bubble up into the overall picture of God's plans and purposes and God's mm. story. So good. And then when I ask where, how is this relevant to me? It's not because of all the little bubbles I'm pulling down into my me box. Yeah. It's because with each story, I'm learning more about how God carries out his plans and purposes. And as I learn more, I can see more about my role in God's story. Yeah. And I can learn about how I can participate in God's plans and purposes. Yeah. 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 Here's an illustration I've been using lately to, to get to that. Uh, many people these days have their phones or their computers set up with facial recognition, mm. right? So your computer recognizes you. Mm. What I've been told, I'm not an expert on this, but what I've been told is that every time your facial recognition program pings you, it improves its read of your face. Mm. And the more often it does it, the better its recognition becomes wow. so that it's tougher to fool. Wow. Okay. So that even your identical twin could look in it and it would know the difference. Wow. So that if you had a black eye or cut your hair off or, you know, Jason, if you shaved your beard, you know, that it would still recognize you. The more you ping, more it pings you, the more developed and detailed and nuanced mm. it becomes. Mm. So you can see the analogy. We are seeking the face of God. Yeah. And so we're operating with a facial recognition and every time we ping the bible whether it's a narrative whether it's a psalm whether it's a prophet whether it's a, a gospels whether it's a, a, a legal provision in the pentateuch every time we ping we should be asking how does this sharpen my understanding wow. of the face of god in the hands of god and the plans of god and that's why we we go to the bible 
we go to the Bible to ping, 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 ping. So good. So we can have this fully developed idea of how God is working in the world. Oh, and if man. we do it enough, we're not going to get goofed up by things that look wrong. Wow. You know, some people might think that the conquest gives God a black eye. Mm -hmm. We can recognize him even through that. That's not going to mess us up. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and so this idea that what is the Old Testament for us? It is God's story. Yeah. It is God's plans and purposes laid out so that we can understand enough of them to, to, to participate. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. so that we can anticipate them and say, oh, the next step in God's plans and purposes mm -hmm. is, ah, the millennial kingdom or whatever. It's not so we can anticipate them. It's so we can participate in them. Mm. 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 Amen. No, Dr. Walton, that was so oh, so good, man. You're like pastoral at heart. I always love it. And I'll let the listener know that the conclusion of your Old Testament theology, it's so you leave it on that part. And it's so good. You're like, we're just, it's like when you, I think you talk about a spouse, like when you first meet them or you're at college, like, oh, what's your major? Where's your dorm? And then you start to get to know more and then you start to know you're like, and after a while it gets, you, you kind of become a chump and you, you don't care about their past anymore. And that's lame. We need to care about them. And like, who is this person? And that's a pretty good hermeneutic, right? That's the hermeneutic of, I'm just trying to get to know this God of ours or whatever. Yeah. So we've got a little bit of time left. And since I was so intrigued by just the old Testament theology, I'm like, well, what do they believe? You know, like, it's hard not to read everything back on there. It is like so difficult. I didn't realize how difficult it was till I read your book. And I was like, man, I, <laughs> I carry that with me so much. But um, I'm curious to hear what would you say? Okay, so here, here's a quote from the book. You say, Israelites, this is the Old Testament. Israelites were not looking for salvation from sins. They were expecting resolution of covenant disorder. This part was so good. And I'm sorry if you've been asked this a hundred times, but I want everyone to hear this because it's like, oh yeah, that sounds about right. Can you, can you explain sort of what, what was, yeah, what that means? What, what were, was an old Testament Israelite about? Like if, if I'm all about putting to death the flesh um, and trying to live in the spirit and I'm excited for the new heavens and the new earth, I'm trying to love God and my neighbor and pi and that sort of piety and tell us what is an old testament piety and tell us is it exactly the same in the covenant god had made a relationship with israel and in the torah he told them how they can live wisely so that that relationship isn't jeopardized so that he can remain dwelling among them in the temple and that wisdom was to lead them to appropriate behavior so that they could be people who brought honor to God's name. When a king takes a vassal, it's to enhance the king's reputation. And the vassal is supposed to bring honor to the king's name. When God made a covenant with Israel, it was like taking them as a vassal. We've all heard about how covenants and treaties, right? He was taking them as a vassal. And he... He told them that as he took them as his people, he had given them a new status. That status is that they were now, because he said so, holy. Mm. Holiness was not something they had to achieve. 
just like salvation isn't something we achieve. Holiness defines God. You are holy. That is an indicative, not an imperative. You are holy because I'm holy. <clears throat> and that happens because I just folded you into my identity. And I've identified with you and you're identified with me. And that means that the holiness that I have given you is supposed to lead you to live in light of that status, to reflect the holiness that is characteristic of me because we are co-identified and therefore you can really wreck my reputation. Mm. Mm. And so your job as God's people, he told them, is to honor this relationship that we have mm -hmm. and to seek to reflect my holiness in how you live in bringing honor to my name. Mm -hmm. That's what the covenant was about. Mm -hmm. When Israel failed to follow that wisdom, failed to reflect that holiness, failed to give honor to God's name, then of course that threatened the covenant. And that's what the covenant curses are all about. Mm. And that's what the prophet's judgment oracles are all about. You're going to suffer the things that the covenant said you were going to suffer if you failed to be faithful to the covenant. And so God called them to faithful living, faithful to the relationship that he developed with them through the covenant, mm. faithful to live, reflecting the honor on God's name that their holy status called them to. In that sense, the holiness is not just piety or spiritual maturity. Mm. It's anything in every aspect of life that they could do to reflect God's greatness mm. and God's name. So I want to be a, a whatever the language is, a spiritual man or a, a formed man, you know, I want to be pious, not pietism, right? So I know at a minimum, I should not do X, Y, and Z. And I actually know I should also do A, B, and C. Um, but what is, you know, and that's, that's, I'm curious about that, you know, New Testament, but for the Old Testament saint, what, what would have like, almost specifically, what if they're like, okay, I belong to God. Um, we are his people. We're supposed to image him. I want to right now at this moment, I want to go out of my way, not to just respond to a, an event, you know, like where my, you know, I don't want to just spawn respond correctly to if my animal falls in my neighbor as well. But right now there's no scenario like that. I just want to be someone with whom God delights in what, is there, was there a specific thing they can do? Like, I mean, David says, you know, he's dwelling on such and such things of the temple or what, was there something that an old Testament saint could do to say, Hey God, not, Hey God, I mean business, but like, yeah, hey, God, you are our God and we're your people. And because of that. That, that involves moment by moment decisions. It doesn't involve pulling out a list and say, okay, let me see, look up under L what I'm supposed to do here, you know, love. Oh, okay. Okay. It, it, and that's really one of the things we've badly misunderstood about the Torah. It's not a list. Mm. Uh, it, it's a pointer. It offers wisdom in that sense, not too dissimilar from Proverbs. After all, even with Proverbs, we don't go and we say, this is going to cover every element of life. Instead, it gives you illustrations of what wisdom looks like. Yes. And it's our job 
It's our job to seek wisdom. Wow, that one's in James, but it's also in Proverbs. Okay, seeking wisdom. Fear the Lord is the is the beginning. Yeah. That's the foundation. If you don't fear the Lord, then wisdom's impossible. Wow. Wisdom is a pathway to order. Order is a pathway to being God's people in the world. Yeah. And so the idea is that we need wisdom. We don't just need lists. We don't just need theology. We don't just need rules. We don't need laws. That they're not going to get us there. And Jesus says the same in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder. Well, have I got news for you? It's bigger. Yeah. And you can't just nail it down. And people weren't supposed to come out of the Sermon on the Mount saying, okay, okay, I've got it now. I'm not supposed to murder and I'm not supposed to hate. Then I'll be okay. That's my list. No, no. <laughs> that was just another example. Mm. And a, a list can never suffice. It takes wisdom. And that wisdom is something we gain from Scripture, but also from the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Scripture doesn't give us wisdom for every circumstance. Instead, when we can't find our way forward that way, we pray for wisdom. Not wisdom to succeed. Not wisdom to flourish. Not wisdom to benefit. Not wisdom to prosper. Wisdom to be God's people. Wow. Wow. Wisdom to reflect his honor and glory. Oh, so good. So good. So it's like freeing. It's freeing. You know, I've, I've recently been reading, I don't know how to say his name, but John Salehammer. And he kind of said something you said there. Like, I didn't realize, I thought every law was there, you know, the 600 whatever laws. And he's like, well, what's the book of, you know, what is it? like the book of the law? It's like, well, what was he reading? Anyways. And that's why everyone's all mad at me. Cause I, I'm starting to reject what has been called the third use of the law. Cause you know, I, you, you might, I don't know, but for me, I'm like, Oh, I'm not seeing that there, but anyways, it's good to, um, but I'm, I really am trying to follow the evidence. So this has been a great, so good. It was actually exactly what I hoped it would be. Like, I know you're a teacher and you're writing books and you're reading Acadian. So thanks for taking the time to sit with us here. As we close out, um, I just do want to, I want to commend to the listeners, the book, Old Testament Theology for Christians from Ancient Context to Enduring Belief. Um, we'll put that, we'll put that up in the show notes. Last question for you as we close out, the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith would say, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, since you, you're not trying to impress anyone, what, what would you say is the chief end of man? You know, it, it's hard to disagree with what the confession says at that point, glorifying God, honoring his name. I, I can't disagree with that. Uh, enjoying him. Yes, I can see where that could be the case. Although I want to be careful that that doesn't become, well, it's important that I be happy enjoying things. You know, it's all about him. And so, yeah, I might not flesh out the the catechism, the way that the Westminster Confession would, but that basic statement is difficult to disagree with. So you know, if people want more about some of the things I've said about Torah, of course, I've got a Lost World of the Torah book, mm -hmm. and they can find out a lot about that there. Uh, also, some of the other things I talked about, you, I have a book that I've already turned in the manuscript. Uh, it's tentatively entitled Best Practices for Faithful Interpretation. And um that wow that would probably hit right 
you know, ground zero on this discussion that we're having. Oh, man. I hope I it'll be out by the end of the year, but I don't know. It's, it's in process. Okay, we can't wait for that. Um, hopefully, maybe we'll try to rope you in on that. That is so great. Thank you so much for your time and your labors. It's an, it's an honor to talk to you on the podcast. Thank you, brother. It's a lot of fun. Good conversation, Jason. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to lead.